0: we're going to continue on in this series looking at the life of David. And um, last week Colin did a fantastic job as he described to us uh, the the breakdown of character that David went through as he took upon himself to exercise his power and authority in an illegitimate way. And this is essentially what this series is about as we get to this point in David's life. Command is the name of our our mini-series as we go through David. But uh, the reason we called it commander is because we wanted to look at what it was that David actually did with this level of authority that he'd been given. And up until this point, he'd been meticulous, hadn't he? Been absolutely outstanding in his way that he had exercised his authority as he grew as a soldier, grew as a leader, and uh, came into that place where he is now the king, enthroned over Israel and Judah. And, um, and the story went, to recap is that all the soldiers were out of battle, but David wasn't there. Maybe that was his first mistake, where David, being a soldier-warrior king, uh, decided that he would give up his first calling, and in doing so maybe had a bit more time on his hands. And I suspect that he wandered around the palace walls, probably having a suspicion, probably thinking that he could maybe get a sneaky peek at the girls who were bathing over the other side of the wall. That's what happens when people have time on their hands. They get up to things that are illegitimate and no good. And so we saw the story unfold as David then uh, fell in love, or should we say fell in lust, with Bathsheba. And he took her to his bedchamber and had his way with her. And then she came back to him a few weeks later and said, guess what, David, as a result of this, uh, this tryst, I'm now carrying your child. And so this set in motion things that only a king can do. Things that only a king can do because he has the power and the authority of the throne to order people to do this and to do that, to come here and to go there. And so he has said it about that uh, Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, would come back from the battlefield. And he plied him with good food and with good drink and much praise. And he suggested to Uriah that he goes and spends the night with his wife and take her comfort there. But of course, being a, a man of true integrity, a man who had followed after not only God's own heart, but had taken the example from his leader, David, that's the irony of this, is that he didn't go home. Instead, he slept outside of the palace amongst the guards, and David tried twice to get him to go home and sleep with his wife so that he could blame the pregnancy upon Uriah, or, or no, no one would ever measure that or judge that. Of course, this didn't happen, and so he sent orders for uh, the commander of his army, Joab, to put Uriah in an unsafe, compromised position in the battlefield. And in doing so, Uriah lost his life, and we left the story pretty much there, but the, uh, the story now we're going to look at is a story of repentance, a story of change, a story of uh, coming back from the brink of disaster, and we've called it this morning, Renew a Right Spirit. Colin finished his talk by looking at this final verse in the passages that he was covering for us last week when it said this. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And we're left with this poignant moment, aren't we? It's almost like a mini-series where you see this action out, 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 outwork itself, and uh, and then you're left with this hanging Final statement which says, but God who knows all was not happy. God who knows all was not happy. And what was he not happy with? Well, of course he wasn't happy with the, um, with the actions of David. But beyond the actions of David, what he was not happy about was the fact that David's heart had become hard, become hardened and was increasingly hardened. And uh, this, this thing called the throne was starting to get the better of him. This thing called the throne was starting to get into his system where he could, as he did with the setup for Uriah uh, after his sin with Bathsheba, was to take authority in an inappropriate way and to exercise this authority to serve himself. You see, power is temptation, isn't it? Power is temptation. And we see this all around us when we hear of people who have authority and power and jurisdiction and how they exercise that in an inappropriate way. What we have to do is look at the American elections at the moment and the two things that are being uh, channeled back against the candidates is their use of power. Trump's illegitimate use of his authority as a billionaire to have his way with women, and of course, Hillary Clinton being accused of a misuse of power and authority with uh, an inappropriate use of uh, a private email server. All of these things can result out of becoming overly familiar with positions of authority and power, and in doing so, people become uh, hardened to the simple realities that you are accountable accountable if you can, if you 're going to get away with it with, uh, in front of others you 're still always going to be accountable to God and so all I can say is, I wish the election was over, and uh, because I'm getting a little bit. Tired of it, I normally subscribe to Time magazine. I've found that one in every four years, I cancel my subscription because I get absolutely bored to tears with uh, with the American politics at this point. For all of the it goes on, but a hardened heart is a disease that everyone can suffer from. A hardened heart is where you slowly, slowly devolve into a place of overfamiliarity with your own place and position, and your and pride creeps in, and you think. I'm a little bit more worthy or a little bit more entitled than somebody else. True story of a Canadian who uh, hadn't paid his taxes, and he wrote to the Canadian IRD, and he said, please find and close the check for $150. I found that I haven't been sleeping at night because of this money that I owe you. If uh, I find myself still not sleeping, I'll send you some more. (laughs) Uh, I thought, yeah, that's about right. That's about right. That's about right relationship that many people have with the Inland Revenue Department. But uh, in David's case, hypocrisy replaces integrity. Uh, David's reputation was one of being a God-fearing man, wasn't he? Up until this point... We knew that whatever would happen, the end of the story would always be that God would get the glory, that David would honor God with his life, that God would be glorified through the challenges that David faced, as well as the victories of battle and the issues of integrity that he might be confronted with. There was always opportunity there for David to glorify God. And uh, this, this weight, if you like, of responsibility that came upon David as the king starts to shake his foundation what you see over time and you can watch this particularly in in leaders who are in the public uh, arena uh, politicians for obvious obvious example, sports people uh, with the pressure of popularity, the pressure of fame which rises then the opportunity for temptation to take your authority and exercise it in the wrong way uh, you will find that what can be shaken will be shaken what can be shaken will be shaken if a person has a has a lot of money coming into their life as a, as a young uh, sports player could do. If that person's got a predisposition towards alcohol, that alcohol problem is being fueled by the money. If they have a predisposition towards gambling, that will be fueled by the money. If they have a predisposition to illegitimate relationships, that will flow out of this as well. And we find that this is common practice with those who have authority and power, but how they use it and how they use it to God's glory is the most important question. And sometimes it takes years before it ekes out and creeps out and a spirit of entitlement is built up in a person's life and they, they break covenant with their employer, they break covenant with a spouse, with friends, they break covenant ultimately with God. And so in the, in the context of the, the temple, everybody in the temple where David lived, sorry, in the palace where David lived, everybody would have been aware that things were no longer the same as they were. Nothing has changed, but everything is different. Why? Because there's an elephant in the room. Elephant in the room is that David used his power inappropriately to have his own way and then covered up the sin by having a murder take place at his command, at his direction. And so how could life ever be the same? How could people come to David come to his throne, look for judgment, look for a righteous answer to a difficult problem, and have a guy who had acted unrighteously and unjust give direction on issues that required righteousness and required justice. The hypocrisy would have been palpable within that room, wouldn't it? as perhaps somebody came to David and suggested that there was a problem with a relationship and something had to be done, or there were people using their power inappropriately in the in the regions that David oversaw. And he was David giving judgment, giving direction, and all the palace guard and all the palace servants, would, and all the palace family in many respects would have known that David now had no moral authority, no moral mandate by which he could or should be leading. That would have been something really, really tangible in the room, would you think? As people would have gone, oh, there's David giving righteous judgment about unjust issues. And he's still got blood on his hands. Blood on his hands because of his own lusts and his own deceptions. So God was not happy with this, as we saw. And uh, as it happened, the story continues, as we know, and it starts with this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan the prophet. Nathan, David's friend. Nathan who had every confidence in David's ability to do things well. Because we remember the time a few weeks ago we spoke about how David went to Nathan and says, God has given me a vision to build a temple. Or should I say, I have a vision to build a temple for the Lord. And uh, Nathan said, whatever you want. Whatever you do always pleases God. And then Nathan had a, a vision from God to tell David not to build the temple because uh, he had too much blood on his hands. But here's Nathan, a guy who walked closely with David. And uh, he was given this charge by God to go and confront the king about his sin. Now, how many of you would have thought, that's, that's a cool job. I'd like to do that. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? I had a, a scenario 27, 28 years ago. I was working in, the, in a government office, and I was in charge of a team of, uh, uh, of men, as it was, and um, the woman <clears throat> came to me, and they said, we've got a problem with Bill, who was on my team, and I said, oh, what's the problem? And they said, he smells. <laughs> I said, yeah, I know he smells. And uh, he was an older guy, uh, this is in the days when you could smoke cigarettes in the office, which just seems so crazy now. You could puff away and give everybody else lung cancer, as you did. Bless them. And um, and, and yet this guy, um, he did he did have a BO problem, and his tie had so many, many gravy stains on it that you could sort of boil it up and eat the soup if you wanted. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. And his whatever shirt colour he wore, it always had a, a lovely yellow pitch under it but under the armpits. Um, so I went home, I said to Michaela, I'm going to go and talk to Bill tomorrow. She goes, what about? I said, oh, he stinks. <laughs> so, so anyway, I went in and I said to Bill, I said, look, I need to have a chat with you. Would you mind coming into this office with me? And he's like, oh, okay. And this guy was in his 60s and I was in my 20s. So this was, this was a big deal for me. I was like a bit intimidated by it. Anyway, I said, Bill, I said, I've got something to say, and there's no easy way to say it, but you've got a real problem with BO, and uh, some of the other staff said to me that I needed to talk to you about it. Well, of course, he was horrified. And then uh, he he looked at me and he goes, can you see the scar on my head here? I said, yeah, yeah. He says, I fell off my uh, motorbike when I was 18, and I lost my sense of smell. I've never been able to smell ever since. And, uh, and he was a widow of about four or five years. And so he said, my wife always helped me with this little problem. And uh, I said, oh, oh, I'm really sorry you know, that you can't smell anything, um, but we can. And, uh, <laughs> and he says, okay, I'll, look, I'll get it sorted. Well, that night he went down to the chemist and he must have bought everything. He had deodorant, he had underarm stuff, he had... After shave, he had smelly this and flash shampoo, which done. And a week later, one of the girls came to me and said, we think we liked it better. (laughs) When he smelt of tobacco and sweat. So, back to Nathan. It's a long segue into this, isn't it? Back to Nathan. I don't think Nathan would have been too thrilled about the idea of confronting a king. Especially a king now who was not only, uh, uh, in a a, he was in a place now we probably felt he got away with it, you know. He brought Bathsheba into his palace, and uh, made her his wife. But David is now going to be confronted by Nathan. The word, the biblical word, the Christian term for this is to admonish. Admonish is a term that we don't use very often, Uh, but it's a it's a term that talks about. Correcting somebody in love. And David wants to. Uh, sorry, Nathan wants to confront David, but he wants to do it in love. And so he goes about it in a rather fascinating way. He uses a parable, and this is how it goes. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except What a great little story, eh? And we can imagine David sitting on his throne, just kicking back. You know, I'm gonna pass judgment on something. And as he starts to hear the story, he would have started leaning in. Leaning into the story. What? He took the poor man's only lamb, he slaughtered it, cooked it, and gave it to a traveler when he had probably hundreds. That is absolutely terrible. That's absolutely terrible. And this is what David said. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So the irony of all of this is that Nathan knew that David had still an ounce of justice, still had an ounce of integrity, still had an ounce of what is right or wrong, righteousness going on. And so he chose to tap into that sense of righteousness, what's right or wrong, didn't he? To appeal to him, to bring judgment upon himself. And of course, the trap had been set. And I wonder how Nathan said this. We know what he said, but how did he say it when he said, you are the man? You are the man. David, you are that man. I don't think he would have needed to raise his voice. I think the soberness of the moment, the power of the Spirit upon David, David's heart would have cut him wide open in that moment. When David would have realized at that point that all of his his deception, the only person he was deceiving was himself. For all of his plots and his plans, he hadn't got away with it. He must have felt absolutely humiliated, absolutely overwhelmed by the fact that everybody must have known this. This wasn't a secret. This was public knowledge. And he was a friend confronting him in the most appropriate way, appealing to David's righteousness. And of course, for each one of us, um, we have this challenge in front of us. The biggest challenge that I would put out to you right now in this moment is, who are the Nathans in your life? Who are the people honest enough to tell you the truth. Bill, you smell. Who are the people that you have in your life who love you enough to say, bro, you're going down the wrong road. You you need to back up. You need to back off. You need to turn to the left or turn to the right because the way this is going, you might think you're getting away with it. But let me tell you, we can see what's happening and someone's going to get hurt here. Someone's going to get hurt really bad. You see, the the power of the throne, the power of the throne is something that we all possess. The privilege of responsibility, it might be as a parent, it might be as a a son or a daughter looking after an elderly parent. I just read in the paper yesterday, some of you may have done, of a a poor elderly man in his 80s whose daughter took all of his money, $300,000, just just spent the whole lot, and now he's destitute. And and of course in business. But what happens when we strip back the the throne with all of its glitz and all of its glamour and all of what it gives us impression of having is that we find the human heart, the human condition is still tattered and rotten. We can gloss it up, with a whole lot of flash stuff and make it look good on the outside. Jesus talked about the whited sepulchre, the whited tomb, that we, uh, we see the Pharisees painting up and making it look beautiful, but underneath, Jesus said, there's nothing but smelly old bones. You see, the simple truth is we're fallen creatures. So it doesn't matter how much gloss we put on top of the throne that we choose to sit on, we've got to remind ourselves that we are broken people And this power and authority that is given to us is a privilege and a responsibility and something we have to be very, very mindful of can corrupt us and take us apart and take us down. David, you are that man also. You're the king, you're the adulterer, but you are also that man, a broken man, a broken vessel, a sinner who needs saving, just like every other human on the planet. So... Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and all of Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. Isn't this an indictment? Indictment against David's, Impoverished view now. He, had, what God is revealing to him is saying, "You wanted to take that one little ewe lamb for yourself, David. I could have given you more if you needed more wives. I could have given them to you. If you need more land and more victory in battle, I would have given to, I would have given that to you as well." There's a great little little cartoon character in uh, in New Zealand, and it's known as uh Wall and the Dog. Yeah? Foot Rock Flats. And uh, I've I've got a collection of these magazines at home, and if I need some downtime and a bit of brain-dead something to read, I'll I'll go through these. And I still laugh. And one of the cartoons is just a standalone cartoon, and it's a picture of a cow in a paddock filled with daisies and clover. And on the other side of the paddock is, is one clover with one little flower on it. And the cow is forcing its head through the wires. Its eyeballs are bulging out. Its tongue is at the end of its length, trying to wrap its tongue around this one little daisy in the barren paddock. When he's standing in a paddock filled with daisies, and the dog, as he is, he's leaning against the the fence post, and he goes, that cow could almost be human. (laughs) I thought... That is such an accurate portrayal of human nature. That cow could almost be human. It's not what we've got. It's what we haven't got that continues to tempt us. We need to stop and look around and say, man, we live in the land of clover. We live in the land of clover. And and David did as well. But for David, there was going to be more to be said. And it goes on this way. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Uh, We'll go down to the fourth line fourth line. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Were there consequences? Always. There are always consequences. Even if you think you've got away with it, the consequence will be a hardened heart. And that in itself is consequence enough not to do what God says not to do. This is what the Lord says Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. These consequences. And, And this has echoes for us, this action and consequence. The action and the consequence takes us right back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, doesn't it? You know, eat anything you like. You've got everything here. Just don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat anything you want. Just leave that tree alone. But oh no, the tongue reaches out, grasps and grabs, and they fall. And then God comes back into the garden and says, because you disobeyed, that one command, now there's going to be consequences. There's going to be calamity. There's going to be feuding in the family. There's going to be death in the family, which is pretty pretty similar, isn't it, to what it is that David is told by God that he is going to suffer from, Uh, and that is that the judgment of God comes upon him because of the absolute disobedience. So what's David's response to this? Well, there's always two responses. One, the first response is, I feel really stink because I got caught. And I've got to admit, when I was a kid, mum said, who ate all the chocolate in the fridge? I'd be like, stink. <laughs> Guilty Did I feel sorry because I'd eaten all the chocolate that my brother and sister and my mum and dad could eat? Oh, I was quite happy to eat it. I was just really disappointed I got caught. Yeah? Yeah. You know, that's the nature of, of being a human, isn't it? We, we get disappointed for being caught. Uh, I know there's a number of police in the, in the audience today and in our congregation. We've got seven, seven or eight folks who work in the police department. And I'm sure they will find that most people they arrest are disappointed because they got caught, not because of what they've done. I don't know how many policemen have seen people fall on their knees in repentance before God when they are arrested. Would that be true? Would that be true, Aaron? No, no, not at all. But David, and this is where we see that ultimately he is a man after God's own heart. And I'm going to read this psalm to you. Psalm 51. Because this is the psalm that Dave wrote. David wrote, Dave, not on that good of terms. David wrote... <laughs> O God, and and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way, way, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. If you do not take pleasure in, uh, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That's a very powerful statement, isn't it, of repentance. How does it go?
1: Created me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Let's do it again. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And renew a right spirit within me.
0: A powerful, powerful words. David knew that he had sinned against God. That was his biggest disappointment. That was his biggest disappointment. But let me make a statement. Let me make an observation. The ability to say, I was wrong, I am sorry, still sticks in the throat of many Christians. And there's an irony about that, isn't there? Somehow in the twisted dynamic of our human spirit. We can see the story that tells us we are sinners that need saving. We look at the cross and the death and resurrection of Jesus as that point and place of our own salvation. And yet somehow we still interpret ourselves as being sinless. Surely if our worldview says that we're broken people who make mistakes, then it goes without saying that well within our vocabulary, Should be the words, I'm sorry, I was wrong. These words should be commonplace for us every day, every week. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Why? Because your identity should be in Christ. Because your identity is found in being right, not found in Christ. That's the reason why people never use those words, I'm sorry. I was wrong. But if your theology, your doctrine, is in keeping with a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, you should have no problem saying, I was wrong. I'm sorry about that. I'll try not to do that again. You were right. But somehow, even though our righteousness has been bought and paid for and gifted to us by the cross, somehow there's this thing within us that still says, I still need to be right. And we defend that place with pride and the reason being is that our identity is in being right, not being in Christ. So remember, every time you say sorry, every time you say I was wrong, that's an absolutely loaded, full to overflowing statement of your worldview. That God loves you and that he sent his son to die for you. And that's why David could comfortably say, renew in me a right spirit. Renew a right spirit within me. Let me pray. God, every one of us can identify with, with David. The human heart's desire to hide sin and manufacture a story that would suggest the sin never occurred. We don't have to stretch our imaginations to see how that is so possible, that story. And we're probably all guilty of it in some some way. But the most important thing, Lord, is that we don't harden our heart. Because when we harden it once, it's easier to harden it twice and three times. But to come before you and say, Lord, it's so easy for us to sin against one another, but we don't hide from you. And the beauty of our faith is that the eternal God sees all. And he calls us to account. And so, Father, as we've looked at this story today, we've seen ourselves, perhaps not in the adultery, but certainly in the deception. And so we say, God, bring to us the Nathans, those who are brave enough, honest enough, God-fearing enough, to speak into our lives and tell us how we are beginning to go down a track that is going to be our undoing or somebody else's pain. And so, God, we we ask for you to renew a right spirit within us, that we need not be needlessly cast away from your spirit, but indeed be restored to full faith, that you replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, always and forever for your glory Amen Amen. I'm just going to ask the team to come on um, and they're going to lead us I think they're going to lead us in this song that I just uh, tried to do for you, with you and they will do a downside better job but I'm just um, trusting you can use this as an opportunity as you think now during the singing of the song I just want to ask you one question If a man called Nathan walked into your living room and stood in front of you, what would he say to you? What would he say to you? Let's ask the Lord to soften our heart and cleanse our heart this morning.